Jesus is the reason we're here, amen? amen? And we have life more abundant because of him. Last Sunday was an abundant day. If we could bring our pictures up. Some of you were able to be there. Some of you have been at others. I encourage you, we're going to have others. We had hoped to take all these bags that we bagged, 3,500 of them, and take them down to the Miami Correctional Facility uh, next Sunday, but that's not working out. It'll have to be a slightly different arrangement. We were packed in that church school, over 200 of us. We had boxes of popcorn. That takes up a lot of space. And uh, it, it kind of crowded us in on each other. But, you know, people were happy in spite of being kind of pushed about, and everybody was doing what they could. And we had young, we had the older, we might even have had old. We had families, and we had folks that were truly enjoying doing something that Jesus said should be done, which is caring for the prisoners. Everybody could make a difference, and everybody was. And uh, we even have the backwards dunk application of the stuff here. So it was a pretty good day. It was wonderful to see folks that could barely see over the bag and those that could stick stuff in, father and son. And we created so much cardboard, we needed a crew just hauling it out. They were constantly grabbing it and moving it along, breaking the boxes down, family event. By the way, we appreciate our Pathfinders and Adventurers. I hear Luke kind of put the heavy on his dad and said, I've never done this before. I want to do it. And I think that was wonderful. Thank you. It was wonderful to have the adventures there with us. And uh, I'm not sure what happy anticipations behind those closed eyes and that big smile, but it, it was a good day. And uh, show, hauling boxes out. A few kids, even from Ruth Murdoch, joined us. It was nice to have them. And getting the bags out to the truck, that was a lot of work. Every one of those black bags had six paper bags in them, and you know they were very full this time. So our deacons and others hard at work there. And the Russell family, they're, they're making it. The, the uh, semi-truck's pretty full, and they're still smiling. That's a good sign. The boxes were broken down. I don't have a picture of their burning, but uh, let me just say, all that's left is ashes. And I appreciate Corey Bush and his crew hauling that off. And Crystalline uh, was there at the very end with her mom, Tossie, helping to clean up that She'll be a good deaconess someday and certainly a servant of Christ. Now, let's bring, up the, um, let's bring up the time lapse here and watch it. Watch the piles of things. Do I need to go backwards to do this? Let's watch the... Uh, let's see here. Yeah, there we go. All right, watch the boxes disappearing here. It wasn't quite that fast, but it was close. And... Uh, we did 3,500 bags in a little under two hours, so it wasn't our fastest bagging day, but it was maybe our best one. And uh, the joy that was in everybody's heart, everything's about gone, the camera fell over, and it's a done deal. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Pastor Page and Christmas Behind Bars, and all of you that could help, and all of you that wanted to help, and all of you that someday will help. Jesus said that he was in prison and we visited him. Well, you know, if you're under 18, you're probably not going to go in. And some of us, that threshold may be beyond us right now, but the literature that went in, they tell us at the Miami Correctional Institution that for several months ahead of time, the suicide rates go down when they're anticipating getting the bags. So you may never go into the prison, but your uh, encouragement there. And we as a church, we made a $3,000 contribution. So when you're supporting combined budget and our evangelism funds, part of our evangelism is ministry to the prisoners. So not only did we pack the bags, we worked with uh, Christmas Behind Bars, our local church school, our own family's youth, and uh, more senior. And now we need to be praying when those bags go in that somebody's life will be touched. You know, Pastor Page has told his story here. You know, a piece of literature in prison is why he's ministering among us now. Can you say amen? amen. We don't know when God's going to water the seed, but he can make it grow. The life is put in it. The life is in the word. We go forward in faith. We don't always see the results, but we have confidence that God will reap a harvest if we're patient and if we are faithful to do what he says. Let's pray. Lord, as we 
open this word now. I pray open our hearts. May we be truly truth seekers. And I ask, Lord, that our hearts would be sensitive to the impress of your spirit. So please guide me and guide my brothers and sisters gathered with me here now. And may this be a journey that edifies, maybe warns or challenges. But most of all, Lord, may it lift up Jesus, your gift, our Savior, our elder brother. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Adventist fake news. We're living in an age of info wars. And of course, depending on what flavor of truth you want, if you could put those words together like that, you watch this news source to get this version of truth, this news source to get this version of truth, or this radio program, or this website. But I'm here to tell you today, Adventists cannot be involved in fake news. Adventists cannot be fake. Adventists, if they're going to go all the way through and not embarrass themselves, their family, their God, and disappoint a lot of people, are going to have to be true people. They have to hear and feel in the Word of God. They have to sense what He's saying and see the hand of providence. Through the Word of God, they come to know His voice. In the spirit of prophecy, they find it confirmed. But if, as Seventh-day Adventists, we resist the power of the Holy Spirit, we shall find ourselves calloused and pass by at the end. Now, I purposely don't go into politics in my sermons because politics give you a reason to disagree with me on a substandard issue. Whether I do or don't like this, occasionally I'll use political events as illustrations, but I try to be nonpartisan in the use of them. But in the age of post-truth, what we have found is, is that you can have any message you want, and you can believe whatever you want, and the worst sin is for me to upset you or you to upset somebody else by saying, that's not true. Now, we have our own version of fake news. We give ourselves a hard time. I mean, and in some degree it's okay, and in some degree it's not okay. Is it okay if as Adventists you know what I mean when I say I'm going to have a haystack for lunch? It's okay. Should we explain that to anybody in our midst? Yeah, we should. So a haystack is like a taco salad on steroids with a little bit of beans in it. Um, but we have our own subculture, which is normal. The Kelly family has its own subculture. Your family should have its own subculture with a few little traditions. Well, we have our own sub-fake news. And I kind of want to make a journey on, uh, with you on this today. I'm starting a four-part series on subject matter that will become clear enough in just a minute. I need you to uh, see what these things have in common. Put your thinking caps on and say, what is the common thread that links these things? As we bring up my, my slides here. Okay, so here's one. Well, look at that for a minute. It's hard to imagine that a few minutes later somebody would be dead. And how about this one? Fifty years ago today, somebody supposedly walked on the moon. Uh, Fifty years ago this year. And uh, here we go, a little less than 20 years ago, supposedly somebody flew airplanes into these buildings. And here's one. A lot of people doubted whether or not one of our presidents was an American citizen. And these next couple, some people aren't sure. Some people say the earth is warming. And some people think this is a architected, photoshopped, artistically created rendition of something we call planet Earth. Now, I think we're to the end. Did you get it? Yeah. Every one of those slides I put up have a conspiracy theory behind them. Even after almost all the records that could be declassified about President Kennedy's assassination have been declassified, there's never been an ability to prove there was a conspiracy to kill him. And as far as the uh, trade towers, some are convinced to this day that there were explosives inside the buildings that actually caused them to come down. And as for global warming, it doesn't matter if uh, 
thousands of temperature gauges around the world say it's going up and whether or not the ocean is rising. And uh, some people actually believe that nobody was on the moon. They made all those pictures up too. And as for the world being round, there are a number of people who believe that it is flat. Now I want to talk with you about this. Because we're living in an age where fear and pride are sucking people into a conspiracist way of thinking. Scientists discover the reason people believe in conspiracy theories. This is not old news. This is from August of last year. Let me show you what you're saying. It's pretty disconcerting. They found that conspiracy theorists are more likely to think everything happens for a reason and things are meant to be and an approach they share with another group often considered extreme in their beliefs. Probably most of you fit into this category right here. So what they're doing in the study, they had three uh, control groups of size. These are not little studies. I mean, one study had 125, one had 750, and I think one had 1,250. And they found this to be the case all the way through, that a lot of people who are conspiratists have a fundamental view of the Bible. And uh, it's something they call teleological thinking. You believe that bees were created to pollinate. Well, if you're, a, if you're an evolutionist, Bees were never created, number one, and there was no purpose in their creation. It was all accidental. But if you're a teleologist, if you believe in purpose, you're likely to be a creationist. And it just so happens to be there's an unnaturally high correlation between creationist and conspiratist. Does it make you feel good or bad? I hope it makes you feel bad. We think the message that conspiracism is a type of creationism that deals with the social world and can help clarify some of the most baffling features of our so-called post-truth era. What are they saying? They're saying if you tend to be a creationist and see order everywhere, well, you're going to create social order and comfort for yourself by coming up with these reasons for things being the way they are. So if, if global warming's a democratic conspiracy, they came up with it to overreach. If Planes didn't bring the Twin Towers down. It's probably because the government wanted to be in control of everything and make you fearful enough to where they could pass the Patriot Act and things like this. And of course it worked. And I don't know where the merit is in believing the world is flat, not round, but I do know the Bible says this, that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Have you ever read that? So I don't need science to tell me the world is round. And the pictures from outer space, I believe, now, others got in the game on this too. The London School of Economics and Political Scientists. They, they have their own theories on this. And USA Today had some very interesting things to say about it. Uh, one of the authors of, this, of the narrative says, Oliver believes that the greatest predictor of people's likelihood to accept conspiracy theories is the degree to which they rely on their intuition over analytical thinking. Now, I want to ask you something. Is intuition good, yes or no? Yeah, it's good. Is analytical thinking good? Yes or no? If you had to make a decision and you had a fact in front of you or a gut hunch, if the fact was a fact, maybe going with the fact and analyzing its credibility might be better than just going with how you feel. The absence of evidence never got in the way of a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> No matter how unlikely a given imagined conspiracy and no matter how many facts are produced to disprove it, the true believers, what? They never budge. And why don't they ever budge? Because if you knew what they knew, you'd think just like them. I've learned that there's no such thing as evidence that persuades a conspiracy theorist. Posner said, it's sort of a psycho-religious belief in part. They just know it's true, even if they can't quite prove it. Van Pugin also called conspiracy theories a form of belief. It doesn't matter how much evidence to the contrary you raise. These hardcore conspiracy theories will discredit the source of the evidence. Now, I can't rush by this slide. You could show somebody a fact a verifiable fact. Now, to some degree, we've created this, right? I mean, let's be honest. Disingenuous, lacking integrity scientists have done this because they've used science to prove everything. 
I have, I have a cartoon in my file somewhere, and the husband and wife are sitting across the table from each other. And one of them says, uh, you know, you shouldn't be using the salt. That's bad for you. And the other one says, no, I have science that proves that salt's good for you. And by the way, Ellen White, this was a, this was a fake news story in Adventism years ago. And uh, Jay and Andrews, our first missionary, got caught up in this. I didn't tell this in the first service. And uh, he wasn't going to use salt. And Ellen White was sitting at the table with him, and she started shaking. And he said, oh, Sister White, don't you know that's not good for you? You shouldn't be using it. And she came back with a good one. She said, Brother Andrews, my Bible says salt is good. (laughs) If you don't have facts to dismiss that, that can establish your conspiracy, you have to destroy the facts that ruin your conspiracy theory. This is super important, friends. How honest of heart are you? Can the Holy Spirit say anything to you? The subject matter of today is the Holy Spirit, by the way. And if you didn't know, the new Adventist fake news is that the Holy Spirit is not a person of the Godhead. He's just the Spirit of Jesus. And I'm going to go into this a little bit more. I'm not quite done here. Oliver does not believe conspiracy theories have a major impact on politics as much as they are symptomatic of problems within the political system. It's less about the conspiracy theories themselves and more about the kind of flight. Notice this. The kind of flight from reason in political discourse. Do you think reason should be in discourse? Do you think the people who make decisions about you and your society, your government, it's bombs, it's money, it's medicine? Do you think there should be reason there? Do you want the flight of reason from your religious discourse? American democracy is a product of the Enlightenment. Reason meant an awful lot to us. It is a very explicitly rationalist enterprise. We believe in logic and fact. And if people reject rationality to embrace what they believe over what they can prove, that democratic enterprise could begin to unravel. And I'm here to tell you today, so could the Adventist church if we dig down into the recesses of conspiracy and fake news. And I'm going to take you on a journey. Here we go. 24 times in John's, John's gospel, just three chapters, God, Jesus refers, this is Jesus, refers to the Holy Spirit as a he, a him, or a who. Now, does that mean the Holy Spirit has a male gender? No. What he's emphasizing is the fact is that the Holy Spirit is a person as opposed to an impersonal force. I got an envelope this week, and it's probably one of the most troubling pieces of mail that I've gotten in a long time. In this envelope were a number of documents and a letter that did not sound like the person who sent it to me. I happen to love the person who sent this to me. He was a mentor of mine. He and his wife, when she were alive, were tremendous friends of my family. He has not ceased to be my friend, but he is in deep trouble. And he had to be a missionary and make sure that I knew that 50 years of his service working for this denomination was maybe worse than wasted because the denomination is in apostasy because a long time ago, back about 100 years ago, we continued studying the Bible and went past people like Uriah Smith and James White who were Arians they didn't believe in the full divinity of the, of the Godhead, nor did they believe in the full divinity of Christ, by the way. Arianism is Jehovah's witness, and Jesus is a sub-God. That's what it means when you say the word Arian. It's not just that they didn't believe in the Godhead and the Holy Spirit as a member fully embodying all the Godhead. It's that they didn't even believe that Jesus himself was equal with the Father. Now, it's important for us to understand the Seventh-day Adventism didn't think they got the lock, stock, and barrel and closed all down theological understanding back in the 1840s, 50s, or 60s. They believed that God would reveal Himself more progressively over time through His Word. Do you believe this? Then we don't have to be stuck where they were stuck when they didn't believe the right things. Our Seventh-day Adventist forefathers, when they were Millerites, went to church on Sunday and ate pig regularly. But they progressed on to where truth could be truth. And if the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as a fully equal part of the Godhead was not in their repertoire of understanding, it doesn't mean that we're going to practice some kind of patriarchal creedalism where it's only believable if the ones who came before us believed it. I need you to understand this. 
Because when you read this literature, it makes it sound like we're apostatizing if our concepts of truth should grow and expand and we might understand that there is actually one of the most beautiful pictures of God when they're not at war with each other, but when there is such a perfect harmony that one will glorify the other and the other will glorify the other in a trio of united divine oneness, which is to represent the oneness that we have. Read John 17. I don't have time to do it today. But Jesus' prayer is, let this church, praying for his disciples, be one as the Father and the Spirit and the Son are one. That is a prayer that ought to take our minds into outer space. I'm here this morning because this literature is damning in its subtleness to suggest a few things. Number one, that if we hold any doctrine that is similar to the Catholic Church, that somehow that doctrine is suspect. Now I'm here to tell you something. My dad's side of the family is all Catholic, and they are some wonderfully beautiful people, and I'm here to tell you something else. The Catholic Church holds doctrines that we consider to be perfectly biblical fine doctrine, or at least significantly in common with biblical doctrine that we hold Because the doctrine is held by another church, be it apostate Protestantism or Catholicism, does not make it wrong. But the not-so-subtle insinuation here is that if we hold a doctrine in common with the Catholic Church, which was a word that means general, which is what the New Testament church was, it was the Catholic Church, it was the general church, that if we hold a doctrine in common with them, somehow... That is suspect, and it's the evidence of a conspiracy. And let's trace our way all the way back to where this conspiracy began. And it doesn't matter who we impugn and who we slander on the way. Yeah, I read part of the book. If you took the parts of this book out that trace the idea... You know, we don't believe exactly the same thing as our Catholic brothers and sisters do about the Godhead. We don't believe exactly the same thing. But whether you use the word Trinity or the word Godhead, Seventh-day Adventists do believe on biblical evidence that the Holy Spirit is as much God as is Jesus and is the Father. You come down to the end of this book... Actually, not this one, this one. And when you get down to the end of it, the basic premise of the book is that if you believe that Jesus, if you believe that the Holy Spirit is a person and is as much God as Jesus, that you're actually robbing Jesus of glory because in some places in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to as His Spirit. And this is the most convoluted reasoning, but what they act like is very un-Adventist. So let me explain this. As a Seventh-day Adventist, I do not believe, nor do we teach, and my suspicion is, since most of you have studied into the Word, you know that you don't have an eternal spirit going around inside of you that flits off to heaven or hell when you die. We become a living soul when a body and the breath of God inhabit us, that's a living soul. We don't believe that I've got an immortal soul that races down to hell, camps out in purgatory, or flies off to bliss in heaven when we die. We believe the breath goes back to God, the body goes into the ground, and we wait to be resurrected. Amen? This is what we believe. But if you follow the reasoning of this book, you come away with the idea that somehow Jesus has a spirit that is different than his person, and that spirit is what came to earth, but it is literally every bit as much Jesus. And if you call it the Holy Spirit and give it its own person, you're robbing Jesus because that's Jesus' spirit. Now, I want to tell you, you can't get anywhere with this kind of logic. (laughs) It makes it sound like Jesus has got himself his own little uh, two-person-in-one thing going on. Now, when we look into this topic, we find that if you read the subject to where every little phrase has to be literalistically interpreted, you could literally have the Holy Spirit as nothing but 
Jesus himself, even though he took on humanity, and Ellen White's quite clear about this, Jesus took on humanity so he couldn't be everywhere at one time. Take your Bibles and open them up. We're going to look at this. Jesus promises, go to John chapter 14, Jesus promises that he will send another comforter. Jesus, in the same dialogue, uses this term, he, him, and whom, 24 times in the three chapters that will follow. John chapter 14. And by the way, while you're going there, I'm just going to read this to you. Jesus, actually, go ahead and go there and put a mark in your Bible and then come back to Matthew 12. Stick something in there so we can go over to John 14 kind of quickly when it's time. I want to go to Matthew 12 first. And I want to remind you that Jesus himself was accused of being the devil. He was accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus had a very serious warning for this. It says in Matthew 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now this next verse is pretty amazing. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either either in this age or in the age to come. Somehow Jesus, in his knowledge of the eternal and human workings of conviction and truth, understood that his words were born to the human heart on sound waves, but impressed upon the human heart by the Godhead himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. And this is how it works yet today, which is why when the Holy Spirit speaks to you about something and you ignore Him, it's like the calluses on my hands. Every time I rub up against something that's not easy or should be inside my body, my skin says, thicken the barrier, thicken the barrier. And when the Holy Spirit comes up against your life and you say, go away, go away, you create the callus that makes it hard for you to hear. And eventually never thinking that you'd end up way out of bounds, enemy of God. You do. And the problem with speaking against the Holy Spirit is that when you speak against the Holy Spirit and you never stop, you commit the unpardonable sin. Jesus has this warning. I think he understood there would be some challenges. John chapter 14 Flip back over there now, if you would, and we're going to look at verse, we'll look at the first few verses, and then we'll jump to verse 16. Do not let your heart be troubled. If you haven't memorized these scriptures, memorize them. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. What's Jesus doing? We're entering into the last week of his life before the cross. And what he's trying to do is get his people ready and tell them, you know what? Things are going to turn out different than you thought. You're not going to have me as long as you thought. I won't be sitting on the throne that you thought. And you're going to be sad when I'm gone. But don't be troubled. I'll be leaving to go do another work so that when it's time to come home, you've got a place. Now skip over to verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another comforter, some of your Bibles say, some say helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the spirit of what? Truth. Now listen, truth matters. You believe a lie, you'll find yourself in deep trouble somewhere down the road. 
This is not just another comforter or another helper. This is the spirit of truth. Should we find that the devil makes an end run, he tries to flank the family and the army of God at the end of time so that the very thing they need most is the very thing they're unprepared to receive and that in the form of supposed conspiratous new light, they actually blaspheme the spirit himself who Ellen White makes very clear is a person and is as fully God as any other of the three that make the triune oneness, the unified God, the one God that we worship, love, and know. And by the way, while I'm at it, anybody that reads, thinks, or wants to send anything to me, send it. I want to tell you, I've had so many engaging conversations just between the services, and I'm going to share one of them right now with you. If you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim and you talk about Jesus, they use the same argumentation that's used in this literature. And that is, if you make Jesus God, you take something away from the Father. This is just a little different application with different parts of the Godhead. If you make the Holy Spirit God, this literature says, you take something away from Jesus. Well, let's just move over to the Muslims and the Jehovah's Witnesses and anybody else who's Aryan and doesn't believe in the full, fullness of the, bo- of the Godhead dwelling bodily in Christ. And we have a new argument or an old argument in place again. And that is that if you make Jesus God, you take something away from the Father. It's nothing new under the sun. Jesus promised us that he would send someone else to comfort us. Now listen, in Star Wars, they may talk about the force being with you, but when my heart's breaking, I want a comforter. I don't want a force. Can you say amen? Amen. Jesus knew that as he became a human being, he would give something up of his deity. That was omnipresence. And when he gives up his omnipresence, he is not going to leave us as orphans. Amen? We can have Jesus because the God that is constantly deferring, honoring, and reflecting each other. We can be as if Jesus was in our very presence. We can be shepherded as if we were one of the disciples. It's now through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and leading and guiding us, teaching us and comforting us and making us fruitful, fragrant, and free in the name of the one who died and paid the price. Amen? This doctrine is central to so much of what we believe and the idea that there were some twisted Seventh-day Adventists a hundred years ago who began conforming to apostate doctrine is blasphemy of the highest order. Now, you don't have to feel as strong about it as I do, but you don't have one of your mentors sending out dozens of these packets saying, in effect, I wasted my life working for the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know who's led him into it. I don't know who gave him the literature, but I know when you're 81 years old, you don't always think as clear as when you're 55 or 35 or 15. But I know this, the, the specious line of reasoning that is used here ought not to go uncontested. When we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, it's important for us to know a few things. When you can't disprove the facts, because the spirit of prophecy is clear on this, you have to discredit the sources. That's what I was showing you in the beginning. Now I'm going to show you something, and I'm just going to tell you that all those who go down this line of reasoning with the new Adventist fake news try to make this truth not true. Now, I want to ask you what a manuscript was a hundred years ago. You may type out a manuscript now, but a hundred years ago when Ellen White was writing her books and articles, she wrote them out in hand. A manuscript in the 1800s is something written out by hand. We have tens of thousands of manuscripts from Ellen White. In her own handwriting, which is a little hard for you to read, but of which we have reams and reams of pages, she says these things. What this says across the top, and you can feel free to look it up close if you want to go to the Ellen website, is the Holy Spirit is a what? A person. For he beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Go to the book Evangelism, page 616. And when you look at the websites and, and, and the literature on this, they have to go out of their way to take the simplest statements and explain to you why they're not true. And it's all, not all, but it's significantly conspiracy thinking. Let's go to another one. She says this in a manuscript in the 1900. 
his faith in Jesus Christ by baptism, I clipped the quote, and has become a receiver of the pledge from the three persons. And who are the three persons? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All in her own handwriting. But these have to be fakes. These have to be forgeries. Are they? The Holy Spirit is the comforter, she writes. Just read that in John 14. In Christ's name, he personifies Christ, yet he is a distinct what? Personality. All right, let's go to another one. Here's one where it's gone past written form and now it's typed. And I want you to notice a couple things. The first thing I want you to notice is she has crossed some things out. This will not go into a book form as it was written by hand. After it was written by hand, it was typed out and she looked at it again. And let's see what she did here. We have every reason to think that we are in the right place. We have been brought together as a school and we need to realize and look at the underlining. The Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking in these grounds. Now, she also inserts something here. See the carrot top? And what's going to go into the published article will have this included in it, unseen by human eyes, that the Lord God is the keeper and helper. He hears every word we utter, and he knows every thought. She had originally written out, we think, but she crosses that out. Now, if in the course of her preparation of her manuscripts, her writing, she's comfortable to cross things out and to leave things in, such as who is such a person as God, who is much a person as God is person, what we begin to see is that you've got to stretch a long way to hang on to your intuition and your gut feeling and your belief, which leads to a conspiracy over analytical thinking and fact. I'm not going to read that. She goes on to say something very important. The church is not now the separate and peculiar people she was when the fires of persecution were kindled against her. I'm going to pause right now and insert something. I have two groups of people listening to me here today, maybe three. I have one group whose tendency is to say, ah, doctrine, that's dusty old non-important stuff. Who cares? Because a lot of you have not bumped into somebody who has now made a shipwreck of their faith by denying the very essence of who God is. You see, at the heart of the Seventh-day Adventist message is the character of God. Amen? Amen. That's who we are. In effect, the, the final warning is a warning to get to know God before the day of mercy is closed. We are not scaring in people into, into heaven with the fires of hell. We are inviting people into a living, loving relationship with a compassionate God. This is what she says. In the days when we had to pay a price to believe, the church was more like gold and less like dross. How the gold has become dim. How is most fine gold changed? I love this quote. I saw that if the church had always retained her peculiar holy character, the power of the Holy Spirit which was imparted to the disciples would still be in her. And this last sentence, I'm hanging on. Because this day's coming. The sick would be healed. Devils would be rebuked and cast out. And she would be a mighty... I copy this straight from the website, so that doesn't seem quite right. She would be mighty and a terror to her enemies. You know what? I'll be very frank. I grow weary of the church constantly going like this and backing up. The day is coming when through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church will take up the sword and the shield and they will march into the fray and with the helmet of salvation on and the belt of truth girt about their waist and their feet shod with the gospel, they will not retreat because the Holy Spirit will be in their ranks. And like David could run against the troop, so will the church. And God's church will be victorious in a way we haven't seen in decades. Now I want to talk to you about conspiracy theories for just a moment. Take your Bibles and open them up to the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapters. Genesis, chapter 3. You need to understand 
that from early on, the devil understood the power of fear and significance. Listen to me. People who believe uh, conspiracy theories, they're either very afraid and stressed out, and the worst thing they don't know is that a conspiracy theory makes you afraid with nothing you can do. You read it. So they're building a thousand... uh, detention a thousand barracks out in the middle of Nevada somewhere for the Sabbath keepers. There's no facts to prove it. But what you get to do now that you know is be afraid before you have to be afraid. Listen, friends, if it was true, could you change it? The answer is no. And if someday God should allow you to be incarcerated for His name, will He be with you and sustain you? Even if you should go to the death For Jesus, He did that for you. Could He sustain you? And then there's the conspiracy theorists who are on the top of the pack. It's a little bit like a, uh, let's see, what do they call those where you start selling ahead of time and and, uh, you get to the top of the pack, you know, yeah, those pyramid schemes. So the people who are at the top of the information pyramid, they make money. They make money by getting you to support their cause, help them publish their books. Because if other people knew what you now knew, we could all not be part of the apostate church. Yes, it's significance or it's fear, typically. And somehow the devil knew that we were prone to this pride dynamic. Haven't you heard, Eve? (laughs) God's not who he says he is. Haven't you heard, Eve? If you just get a bite of this, you'll be like God. Haven't you heard, Eve, that he's keeping something from you? And isn't it good, Eve, that you ran into me? Because I've got the inside story. And if you eat this, it's going to be different. And of course, like all of his lies, there's a little bit of truth mixed with a lot of error. And in the moment, Spirit of Prophecy tells us she ate the fruit, and for a moment she thought she felt a rush. And by the way, friends, don't ever tell your kids that that first drag on weed isn't going to be good and that first sip of wine isn't going to be good. Now, beer and cigarettes, that's a different story. You've got to learn to choke some of those things down before you like them. <laughs> but don't tell your kids that what the devil says is bad doesn't seem good at first. It does. Make sure they can't be easily caught off guard and doubt everything else you say. But the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse 6, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She bought into the conspiracy theory. She took from the fruit, verse 6, and she ate and she gave also to her husband. He didn't buy into the conspiracy. It was his sin we needed to be saved from. She was lied to, duped, and tricked, and it was wrong. But he went forward without believing the conspiracy theory because he put her first. Conspiracy theory number two I want to bring you up to date on. Jesus was crucified on a Friday afternoon. He died and was taken down off the cross before the Sabbath. He was put in a tomb, but people were afraid. This time it's a different route. Scribes and Pharisees can't shake the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ's words, which the Holy Spirit drove home. And they say to themselves, he's not going to be gotten out. We're going to put a hundred soldiers at that tomb. We're going to seal it with a Roman seal. But on Sunday morning, some women who loved Jesus, brave, bold women, were going to walk up to a a hundred of a centurion's troop, and they were going to ask somebody to move the stone and let them go in and anoint the body of Jesus. Beautiful, brave women. Somehow, while all the men were blinded by self-aggrandizement and pride and wanted the left and the right seat and couldn't get it, some of these got it. When he said die, that meant die. But when they walk up to the tomb, the stone is gone. The soldiers are gone. They're in town. And what do they have to do to cover it all up? They're given money and they are given a story. It just so turns out that it's a conspiracy story. Here's the conspiracy. 
He wasn't really raised to life. He was stolen away by his disciples. Now I want you to know something and I want you to think about something. Jesus did not march in to the Sanhedrin. He did not march into Jerusalem. He did not say to all his disciples on Sunday evening or any of the days that followed, come on, we're going to go in and we're going to do that triumphal thing again. That was not what Jesus did. He had a different plan. He had a different promise. He had a different gift. It was not his with a show of force to wow us all and prove that he was who he said he was. But he could have got rid of that conspiracy theory that quick. But he didn't. What he did was he hung out with his disciples and he told them something. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. You stay here and you pray. Don't go out and try to win a single soul. You wait for the promise I made to you. And after 10 days of praying, I want to tell you, I have knelt with people whom I didn't really like, but at the end of praying with them for 10 days, I liked them. I loved them. In those 10 days of praying, I don't know when Peter said to the rest of them, you know, guys, I sure did open my mouth too often, didn't I? And they very nicely kind of like, yeah, you did. I'm sorry. And James and John, I don't know when they said, sorry, guys, for climbing to the top of the pack through my mom. And I don't know how many things they said over and over again. I, I couldn't believe that I was so full of myself and Jesus was so empty of selfishness. The love of God, the glory of what the God who was fully God would do. That's why Paul's going to write, Jesus was completely, fully, unequivocally God. That was a new thing. The word Messiah did not mean fully, equally God. It meant anointed one. It meant deliverer. They were surprised. When Jesus arrived and he forgives sin in the house of Peter when they tore the roof off and the paralytics being led down, why did everybody get their hackles up when he said, be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because only God could forgive sins. And who did he think he was? He just knew who he was. That's why in John chapter 13, it could say, knowing who he was, where he'd come from, and where he was going, he took the towel, and he knelt down, and he washed their feet. Jesus didn't have an identity complex, and he wasn't insecure. He knew who he was. The third and final conspiracy will at least involve an attack on the Holy Spirit as well. You see, in the beginning, there was the law of God. There was the, there was the era, you might say, of the Father's preeminence. That law was broken. It was broken in heaven. It was broken on earth. Then there was the promise of a deliverer, a reconciler. That's Jesus. He was that rock that went through the desert with him. And finally, after Jesus dies, there is the application and the empowerment of the merits of the cross, and this comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers chapter 20. I'm not starting the sermon over. I'm, I'm coming to the end. Numbers chapter 20. I want to take and make a typological application of the work of the Holy Spirit. Numbers chapter 20, we're at the end of almost 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 20, we're going to have the worst day that Moses has had in his life for 40 years. Verse 8, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. Do what to the rock? Speak, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them. Now these words are laden with emotion. If I started out this sermon today and I said to you, now listen you rebels. I think I probably would have said a lot in just a few words. Moses, it appears, without me 
being able to be inside of his head, it appears that Moses has come to the end of his rope. That rock that was in the wilderness, Paul tells us it followed them. When Moses struck the rock the first time, nobody had ever seen anything like it. Water gushed out of a rock in a desert, nothing green for tens and maybe hundreds of miles, but there is now a river that will make heart, make glad the hearts of the children of God and their beasts. That rock followed them, the New Testament says. That river went everywhere they went most of the time. But for some reason, at the end, it's not flowing. Why? Listen, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? They had always accused Moses of being the real leader, not God. And Moses will oblige himself today that, yeah, he's got a little more than he thought in the beginning. Then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And because he disobeyed God, no water came out of the rock. Is that what it says? Praise God, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> he lifted that, that staff up and even though he was going directly against what God said, God didn't fly away like he was no longer his son and his prophet. God still made water come out of the rock. When you do things that are wrong, even when you know they're wrong, God doesn't fly away from you. His heart is broken. His heart is sad. Law is still in effect. And Moses and Aaron are not going to be delivered from having to face God. But God himself is heartbroken because now the plan to lead them into the promised land won't be the plan he has for Moses and Aaron. That's going to go to someone else and he says it so. Now I don't have time to preach this sermon. I'm going to tell you in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, the Bible says God was beside himself when Moses asked to go in later on. And I'm going to tell you what the spirit of prophecy says in Patriarchs and Prophets that Jesus took him up onto Pisgah and showed him the whole land and the future and the Christ and the second coming. And after he buried him himself, God resurrected him according to the book of Jude and took him home. You see, God couldn't let him lead into the promised land. He was a compromised leader after this, but he was still loved by Jesus. And so are we. Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore shall you not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. What's the deal? Here it is. Let's get the application here and bring this in for a landing. When you go 38 and a half years from Sinai up to the Jordan, and every day except Sabbath there's food on the ground, and every day except a very few there's water flowing from a rock, and every day there's a cloud above you by day to shield you from the heat, and every night there's a fire up there to make sure desert cold doesn't chill you. When every day you can rehearse what God has done, and there's chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, you shouldn't, and you don't, if you've grown in faith, need the same exposition of God's power the exact same way. It ought to be enough this time that with 38 and a half years since Sinai, you should be able this time to approach the rock differently. And instead of any physical phenomena being used in striking the rock, you can say, in the name of the Lord God Jehovah, let water flow from this rock. And you know what? It would have. Now how does that fit us? From the year 1844, when we were disappointed as a people, Millerite Adventists, no such thing as the Seventh-day Adventist yet. The very next morning, as Hiram Ebsen was walking across his cornfield, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same God that came down at Pentecost and gave Peter power, God, through the Holy Spirit, moved on the heart of Hiram Edson and he explained the gross error that had been made in the prophetic understanding and showed him the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary.
That journey of teaching by the Spirit, who is not just a comforter, but he's a helper and a teacher. That journey of theological understanding moved us from great error into great assurance and gave us a message no other church since the Jews, and maybe not even them, have been able to share with the world that there is a threefold ministry of Jesus. He died as the Lamb, He ministers as a high priest, and He will vindicate His people in one final act that glorifies His Father and glorifies His children as well. It is an amazing story. That Holy Spirit, which has been amongst us in the place of the now human Jesus, who is in the presence of his Father and cannot be here with you and me because he took on forever human form, that Holy Spirit in the epoch, in the era, in the, in the arena of his preeminence as the ministering part of the Godhead, That Holy Spirit is expecting that you and I can look back over the history of our church and the history of our life as we come up to the final battle to cross that spiritual Jordan and we are going to ask God in a prayer meeting and in many prayer meetings for the power of the Holy Spirit and it's going to be poured out in greater might, power, and volume than it ever has before because the latter rain will be greater than the early reign, and it's all of the faith that's accumulated from looking back, like 38 and a half years, should have given faith enough. This second striking of the rock has a typological or a symbolic application to the day in which we are living. The question for us is, are we asking and do we want it, or are we blaspheming the gift of the presence of God in a completely different way? Am I feeding my mind with the trifling superficialities of mindless YouTube videos? Am I feasting vicariously on other people's lives by all the time I'm spending on Facebook? Do I have to see how many people have put one of these on my post? Do I even care about the Holy Spirit? (laughs) And even worse, am I afraid of the Holy Spirit? It's like saying you're afraid of Jesus, but I need to tell you something. Some people were. I want to be a part of the church when she's a terror to her enemies. You see this? This is, the, this is a, a shipwreck in Nambia. The Edward Bolin. Oh, so what? Well, it's interesting. Let me show you the next picture. This is it from the air. And let's get one more. Do you see how far away the ocean is? Nobody really knows how the boat shipwrecked and got that far away from the ocean. It was a German freighter. (laughs) But I will tell you this. Some people are going to end up that far away from God. And what it says in Matthew 7 about they were knocking and they wanted in. And Jesus came and he said to them, you know, you need to go away. I don't know you. I'm going to spend the next three Sabbaths talking about how to prepare to receive the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's going to do. But I want to leave you with this message. This message will close with power and strength. This message, I don't mean my sermon today, although the truth that's in this sermon today, I do mean. But these three angels and this remnant church, we are not the apostasy. Ellen White was clear on this. When we tried to organize in the early 1860s, some were saying as soon as we organized, we'd be babbling. Now they're saying it again, only this time it's because we believe in the fullness of the Godhead. This message is going to go out in power. You know why? My life, your life, by God's grace, is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we're going to be a praying people together and God is going to do more than He's ever done in any era of human history and the final battle one, while it will be intense, will be the most glorious one. God's name will be glorified. God's people will be lifted up and the battle will be over and the victor leading the last charge will be the Holy Spirit. No wonder the devil hates this doctrine. And no wonder the latest fake news inside of Adventism is that it's a Catholic pagan doctrine 
and that it robs Jesus of something. It's only, it's only, the Holy Spirit's only purpose. You know, Jesus came so that we could see the Father. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to glorify the Son. No wonder the devil is against this doctrine. Put your seatbelts on. Get your Bibles out. If you want to study the Holy Spirit, do me a favor and do yourself a favor. Don't go to any of the conspiratists to get the study going on. Just go to your Bible and read one of the 200 and I think 32 or 62 references in the New Testament and the 80-some in the Old. Just go study it. Read the spirit of prophecy and stay away from the conspiratists and pray for truth. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is part of your journey into being in it. And by God's grace today, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you to do something or not do something, don't resist Him. It's as if Jesus were leaning over, speaking into your ear. And to resist Him is to callous your own heart and end up in the place where you can't do anything but speak against the Holy Spirit. May we be like Jesus, a faithful witness to the goodness of God who said, I won't leave you as an orphan. Friends, I'm asking you to pray for the person who sent me this stuff because I'll be talking to them and sending them this sermon series and they're a dear friend of mine. Only the Holy Spirit's going to be able to break in and crack the shell that conspiracy theory has built around the thinking system. I'm begging you, love the truth lest you believe a lie of your own making. May God help us not to be there, and may Jesus be lifted up through the ministry of the third person of the Godhead. Amen. Please stand and join us in singing number 186.
Father, in a group this large, and because of your individual love for each of us, I know you speak. And I don't know where people are, but I know that we consider this in divine worship power, and we've prayed multiple times that you would be here, and we trust that what Jesus said when two or three are gathered in my name, that he's among us. So I'm praying, Lord, for those that are resisting the Spirit right now. I'm praying, Lord, that they wouldn't be afraid of what you're calling them to do. That they wouldn't let the devil speak into their ear and turn them aside from the path of life, life abundant. So I'm praying, Lord, because the connection needs to be relinked with you. It has nothing to do with me. I'm praying for those people right now that in the brief silence of this last benediction that they would say to you, God, I'm going to stop resisting. I'm afraid, but I'm going to stop in your power. I'm praying, Lord, for so many of the rest of us, I could say, who are too busy to prepare through a study of the Word to give an answer for what we believe and to defend this faith. I'm asking for a divine simplicity chosen and empowered from above to create more time, not less, for things that are eternal and less for the things that are temporary that we can see and touch and handle. And I don't know how that will work, Lord. I know how fearful it is to think, if I don't do it, it won't get done. I'm praying for this church that you'd pour your Spirit out on us. You know, I ask this almost every day. And send every other gift, Lord, that comes with him. Kindness, humility, generosity, commitment, joy, love, self-control. May we quit trying to have them by some human effort and may we give you permission to dwell more fully in us and may we watch you bring them to fruitage as we cooperate with you. I'm praying for this community and this church, Lord, and... The devil knows that all the fighting that's going on inside the Adventist church is a hindrance to you coming down and living as fully amongst us as you would like. Forgive us and help us to humble ourselves. Now, Lord, your scriptures say, if you be for us, who can be against us? Help us not to be afraid. May we not believe the conspiracies. You've outlined what the conspiracies are in the Bible. They're very clear. They're not even hidden for anybody that wants to see them. And may we go forward in faith and confidence with the Holy Spirit dwelling in our heart with freedom to reign. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.